Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to this word being preached. Okay. So, um, this morning I want to uh, start with a, a new sermon series where we're going to, we, we entitled it Questioning Christianity. And the reason for that is because, um, two, two reasons. For us as believers, those of us who are believers, we need to wrestle with our doubts and with the doubts of other people. Um, because I found that Christians who don't wrestle with their own doubts and with the doubts that other people have, uh, they often don't hold their faith very securely. They don't know why they believe what they believe. And they cannot give answers to the challenges to their faith. Um, you know, it's, it's almost like a body without antibodies. You know, um, ha- you build up antibodies by getting exposed to a disease and then your body, your, 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 your immune system fights it and then you build up antibodies to it. Well, when we wrestle with our doubts and with the doubts of uh, maybe skeptics that we have as friends, then it actually enables us to build up antibodies and to build up a, a faith that is more resilient. It, it, we cannot just hold to our faith and to the truth because we received it. We've got to investigate it for ourselves. We've got to um, look at it and, and even face the difficult questions about faith in God for ourselves and wrestle through it so that when we come out on, on the other side, if we decide we still hold to that faith, then it's a robust faith. Then it's a real faith. It's not just, okay, I received it, I was raised this way, and I accept it without any question um, and without any thought. Um, that also means that if we do that, if we um, wrestle with our doubts and the doubts of other people, um, then when we do face questions about our faith, we can answer it in a much more compassionate and credible way because we've actually wrestled with those questions ourselves. So I think it's, it's very healthy. I, I think there was a time in Christianity where it's like, oh, you don't question God, you don't ask difficult questions, you know, just accept everything. Um, I, I, I don't think that was ever a good idea. I think it's, it's healthy to wrestle through questions, to wrestle through, through doubts uh, ourselves, for ourselves and for, for, for other people. Um, so, so I think for believers, it's good to actually do this. But also for um, unbelievers, for non-believers, I think it's also a good thing to, to wrestle with your doubts. You see... Um, Often, I've found in conversation with friends who have questions and doubts about Christianity, that underlying their questions and their doubts, there's actually a faith in something else, an alternative faith. In other words, you cannot question one set of beliefs unless you do it from the vantage point of a different set of beliefs. It's because you believe in something else that you don't want to believe in Christianity if you're, if you're not a believer in, in Jesus. And it's good to realize that your doubts are just the flip side of a different f- alternative set of beliefs and faith. And to actually investigate those beliefs in the same robust way that, that you expect Christians to evaluate their beliefs. And it would obviously be unfair if you're not a believer to expect 
um, Christians to produce more evidence for their faith in God than you expect yourself to produce evidence for your belief in something else. Okay, so I, I think it's it's important uh, at times for us to to um, evaluate our faith uh, and to to wrestle with our doubts, both for believers and non-believers. And, and I hope that this series will be an opportunity to do that. Um, Redin, do you guys have the slides? I put it on. Is it on? Is it on? Okay, there we go. Okay. <clears throat> so um, Timothy Keller said, even as believers, believers should learn to look for reasons behind their faith. Skeptics must learn to look for a type of faith hidden within their reasoning. All doubts, however skeptical or cynical they may seem, are really a set of alternative beliefs. Okay, so we're going to, we're going to look at a little, a little bit at, uh, at that, and we're going to specifically look at it uh, around the question of God and suffering. How can a good God allow suffering? And let's face it, that's a good question. As, as believers, you know, that, that's a, it's a fair question, and it's a legitimate question. If there is so much suffering in the world, how can there be a good God? How can a good God allow suffering? Um, and I just want to read you a... Um, by the way, if you, if you want a good book that, that deals with these kinds of questions, um, this, I found this book by Timothy Keller, The, the Reason for God, quite helpful. He raises difficult issues, and, he, and, and what I like about it is he raises it in a very respectful way. He'll try and state the problem as fairly um, and as convincingly as possible, and then he'll try and give the best Christian answer to it. And, and, and I found it very helpful. And um, you know, when we look around us, we see a lot of suffering every day. Um, you know, we, we've, we've all probably um, had family members or, or friends or know of family members or friends in the last couple of years who've suffered or even died, whether it's, you know, from COVID or from, you know, a car accident or something. We see suffering around us all the time. The... Uh, 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 the majority of people in the world live below the bread line, you know, and, and on a daily basis don't have enough to eat. So many people in South Africa don't have jobs and cannot take care of their families. Um, we look at the news and we see, you know, wars and stuff, you know, going on in, um, you know, Ukraine. And, you know, as, you know, the, they go and investigate those places where, the, where, where, where Russia occupied they find evidence of extreme torture and violence, rape, terrible stuff. People just slaughtered, you know. Um, so, so severe suffering in the world. Um, and it's, it's an issue that, that we should look at um, and, and that causes, understandably, causes many people to question the existence of God. Um, in, in, in this book, Kero puts it this way. He says, in December 2004, a massive tsunami killed more than 250,000 people around the rim of the Indian Ocean. Over the following weeks, newspapers and magazines were full of letters and articles asking, where was God? One reporter wrote, if God is God, he's not good. And if God is good, he's not God. You can't have it both ways, especially after the Indian Ocean catastrophe. Despite confident um, assertions, uh, Keller continues, of the, uh, of the columnist, columnist 
the efforts are, uh, to demonstrate that evil and suffering disproves the, uh, the existence of God is, not, is now acknowledged on almost all sides to be completely bankrupt. Why? Why is this? Um, philosopher uh, J.L. Mackey makes the case against God in his book, The Miracle of Theism. He states it this way, if a good God, a good and powerful God exists, he would not allow pointless evil. But because there is much unjustifiable pointless evil in the world, the traditional good and powerful God could not exist. Some other God or no God or no God may exist, but not the traditional God. Many other philosophers have identified a major flaw in this reasoning, tucked away within the assertion that the world is filled with pointless evil is the hidden premise. Now, remember what we said, that often underlying doubts, there is a hidden faith or belief in something else. Okay? So he says, um, tucked away within the assertion that the world is filled with pointless evil is the hidden premise, is a hidden premise, namely, that if evil appears pointless to me, then it must be pointless. Can you see that? This reasoning is, of course, false. Just because you can't see or imagine a good reason why God might allow something to happen doesn't mean there can't be one. Again, we see lurking within supposed hard-nosed skepticism an enormous faith in one's own cognitive faculties. If our minds can't plumb the depths of the universe for good reasons to suffering, uh, to suffering, well, then there just can't be any. This is blind faith of the highest order. Now, I think Keller makes a very uh, valid and important point. The reality is, we look at the suffering in the world, and it's terrible, and often we cannot see reasons for it. That is true. But that that doesn't mean that there are no reasons. Just because we cannot see reasons doesn't mean there aren't any reasons. And, and not only that, not only philosophically is, is, is that argument weak, but also in terms of experience. Because all of us have experienced suffering, which seems to us in the moment to be pointless, but then as we move on, and with some time and perspective, looking back, we do see reasons for it, and we do see even good coming out of it. So not only does it not stand up to reason, it doesn't stand up to our experience. Our experience is sometimes we suffer, and then given enough time, we can see often reasons for that suffering. Um, now, if we believe in a God who is big and powerful enough so that we can be angry for him, at him for the suffering that we see in the world, doesn't it mean at the same time that he's a God who's big and powerful enough to maybe have reasons for that suffering that we cannot see? I think so. So, number one, just because we cannot see reasons in suffering doesn't mean that there are none. And, and there are many examples of this in the Bible. Okay? Think about Joseph, the well-known story of Joseph who is hated by his brothers, 
because he's, far, he's his father's favorite and he, and he gets sort of preferential treatment. And he's, he's the one with a Technicolor dream coat, the, the, the beautiful clothes. And, and, and um, you know, he doesn't do the hard work like his brothers. And his brothers hate him for it. And they end up taking him captive and selling him as a slave um, to Ishmaelites who take him to Egypt. And for years, <clears throat> he suffers. You know, he works as a slave uh, in Potiphar's house. Then he gets unjustly accused by Potiphar's wife who tried to seduce him, and he gets thrown into jail. And then he suffers for years in jail. Um, he lays out a few people's dreams, and he says to them, please remember me, you know, tell, the, tell Pharaoh about me, you know, uh, when, when he sets you free. And, and the, the dreams are fulfilled, exactly like he said, and then the guy forgets about him. And, and for a few more years, he languishes in prison. And to make a long story short, he ends up being the prime minister of Egypt. And God gives him the wisdom to interpret Pharaoh's dream, you know, of the, the gaunt, you know, thin cows eating up the fat cows and, and so on, and, and shows that there are going to be seven years of um, plenty followed by seven years of drought and, and, and famine. And God gives him the wisdom how to deal with it. And he ends up saving not only the lives of his family, his brothers who sold him into slavery, but of literally millions of people in Egypt and the surrounding countries who would have died. Now, while he was going through those years of unjust suffering, he did not see the reason. He could not see the reason for why he was suffering. But eventually, after many years of that suffering, God made it clear. And at the end, Joseph could say, you sold me into slavery, but God was the one who sent me into Egypt. You intended it for evil, but God intended it. The same it, the same suffering, unjust though it was. God intended it for good, to save many lives as it is today. And so often, you know, we cannot see the reasons for the suffering, but God often does have reasons for, for our suffering. Um, the story of Job is there. And, and the interesting thing about the book of Job is God never actually gives Job a reason for his suffering. You know, for, for you know, dozens of chapters he says, if I can just have an audience with God, if I can just make my case to God, and then at the end of, of the story, God, he does have an audience with God. God does speak to him, but God doesn't tell him, these are the reasons why I allowed you to suffer. <laughs> God just says, Listen, were you there in the beginning when I created the world? <laughs> did you help me do it? You know, do you understand how I did it? God basically says to him, listen, yeah, you need to trust me in this. Um, and and that's, a tough, that's a tough call for us as, as um, believers because it means that God will often not explain to us why we suffer. Not in this lifetime. Sometimes he's just going to say, trust me. In other words... Do you trust me enough to keep serving me even when it doesn't seem to make sense? And, and, and the, <clears throat> the encouragement with, within the book of Job is that God knows that unjust and seemingly pointless suffering is difficult for us. That's why I put the book of Job in the Bible, because he knows it's a question to us. And it's, it's, it's on his radar, number one. Secondly, God is powerful enough that we can trust him. Thirdly, what we see in the book of Job is that Job proved 
Satan wrong. Because Satan said, everyone who serves God serves him for the benefits. And if, if God, if you take away the benefits, they'll stop serving you. And, and God said, I have confidence in my servant Job. I have confidence that he will prove you wrong. He will serve me even when I take away all the benefits of serving me. And even when I fail to explain to him why I'm doing it. He'll still trust me and he'll say, even though, I, even though he slay me, yet will I serve him. And that, has be, that, that is one of the greatest testimonies to God. If, if we can serve God, because the world looks at us and, and, as, as believers and they say, why do you serve God? Obviously, there are some benefits. You think there are some benefits and that's why you're serving God. But is God, if we only serve God for the benefits, then, then it, that, that's mercenary. I mean, if, if you marry someone just for their money or for their status, you know, you, you don't really love them, but you love their stuff. We, we know that's wrong, okay? But the, the devil and the world often think that that's why we serve God. And when we suffer, when the benefits of serving God are taken away and we still continue to serve God and trust God, it proves to the world that God is worth serving even when the benefits of serving Him are taken away. That's a powerful testimony. And we can look back from the New Testament perspective and, and with the New Testament authors say, <clears throat> see the end that God had in mind for, for Job. And God restored to him more than he had at the beginning. Um, but then it's not only Joseph and Job, but there's another person whose name be begins with a J who shows us. His name is Jesus. That often there are reasons for suffering that we don't understand in the moment, but that become clear later on. I mean, when the disciples were looking at the cross, they could not possibly, they, to them it must have looked at the most terrible waste, most terrible tragedy in the history of humanity. I'm sure they could not see a possible reason for why Jesus had to die on the cross and suffer like that. And yet... God did the greatest good through that. He saved us. He saved humanity from its sin through the suffering of Jesus. And if God can do that for the cross, then we who believe in the cross should believe that God can do that with all of our suffering. So, um, even if suffering looks pointless to us, it, it isn't always pointless. We cannot just assume that it's pointless. Secondly, you know, often people look at, skeptics look at um, suffering and say it's unjust. But when you stop to think about it and about the assumptions, the premises and the beliefs underlying that statement, then you realize that it's a problem. Yes, suffering is a problem for believers. That's why it's addressed in the Bible and that's why we wrestle with it. But it's even a bigger problem for non-believers because firstly if you say that it's it's wrong people ought the, the assumption is that people ought not to suffer it's wrong to suffer but where did you get that idea w what are you basing that idea on i mean think about this if someone says i believe in evolution i believe that um, the world was created through a big bang and the natural selection and survival of the fittest, you know, and a process of the strong 
inflicting suffering on the weak so that they can survive. I, I believe that suffering is wrong. I mean, can, can you see that? It's a problem to even say that, you know, that, that people ought not to suffer. Because if that is true, if what you believe about evolution and natural selection and survival of the fittest is true, then it's actually right that the weak suffer at the hand of the strong. Because that's how we become better. Okay? So why are so many people who believe that so outraged at God because of the suffering that they see in the world? What do people base that outrage on? And the reality is they, base it, they cannot base it on their beliefs and their skepticism and their, their disbelief in God. You can only say that suffering is wrong if you say that um, God cr- didn't create us to be that way and he didn't li- create life to be that, like that. And, and that is what we as Christians say. We say God created creation good and right. And without sin and without suffering, the suffering that's the consequence of sin. And therefore, suffering is a problem to us. We, we, we see suffering as an as a invader that, that is not the way things were originally intended by God. But we also see that because we as human beings, through our representatives, Adam and Eve, allowed sin to come into the world, God had to, through his justice, allow us to experience the consequences of our sin. And, and we can't, listen, we can't yeah, point the finger at Adam and Eve and say, you know, you misrepresented us. If we were in the Garden of the Eden, we would have chosen differently. Every day we prove that we won't, wouldn't have chosen differently, <laughs> right? So they represented us accurately. Whether we like the consequences of that representation or not, they represented us accurately. We know that. Our lives have proven that, okay? So God has to, in His justice, allow us to experience the consequences, the natural consequences of our sin, which is suffering. Now, God doesn't like that. But we know what the consequences are of not allowing people to experience the consequences of their actions. I mean, anyone who's a parent who never disciplines their kids and never allows them to experience the consequences of their sin and their wrong decisions, we know what happens to those kids. It does not go well with them. They grow up to be self-centered, entitled little brats, and no one likes them. Be- that's the truth. So, so you know, children, when, when they suffer the, the suffering of discipline, they say they don't like it, and they, and they try to do everything to get out of it. But when later on they experience the benefits of it. Now, let, let me also just do a bigger picture view. I mean, in South Africa, we've seen what has happened when there has been no consequences for corruption and for crime, state capture, those kinds of stuff. Everyone suffers because, of, and one of the main reasons, because there are no consequences for corruption and oppression. Okay? Now, if God were to do that with our whole world, how bad do you think the suffering would have been if God did not allow us to experience at least some of the consequences of our suffering, of our sin? Um, so, God is just to allow the consequences of sin, which is suffering. 
Now, some people will listen to that and say, Any, I hear your, what you're saying, your philosophical argument that, you know, if we cannot see reasons for suffering, that doesn't mean there aren't reasons. I, I hear, you know, about God's justice and that it's not the way he intended it. But, I, you know, I don't care. I've experienced suffering in myself, in my loved ones. You know, even if, you know, you have all kinds of fancy philosophical arguments, you know, to try and defend God against the suffering in the world, that doesn't let God off the hook. The, uh, a philosopher, Peter Kreef, said, God doesn't try to get off the hook. God actually became human so that he could get onto the hook of human suffering in Jesus Christ. You see, God is not a distant God who just allows us to experience the suffering. He in his justice, he has to allow that. And with a sad heart, he does allow that because it's necessary. But he doesn't leave us in our suffering. He enters into our suffering. And Jesus suffered terribly. He suffered physically by being crucified on the cross, hanging there for hours uh, in excruciating pain. In the end, ultimately being you know, suffocating to death. But that wasn't even the worst suffering. I mean, throughout the years, people have suffered worse. Even Christians have suffered worse physical pain, being burned to death, all that kind of stuff. And in some cases, even handled it with more poise than Jesus handled the cross. I mean, Jesus, you know, was anxious unto death. You know, his blood, his sweat became like blood, etc. He was, he was deeply disturbed by what he was going through. But the reason was because Jesus' physical suffering was just the tip of the iceberg. That wasn't the main part of his suffering. The, the, the crux of his suffering was his alienation from God when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he suffered alienation from God, that, the alienation from God that we deserve. Now, we know that emotional, mental emotional, psychological suffering is often much worse than physical suffering. We know that. More long-lasting, difficult, more difficult to get over. If, if someone you don't really have a close relationship rejects you, you get over it quickly. You just sort of brush it off. But the closer the relationship is and the longer the relationship is, the more painful it is. You know, if, if, it's, if it's a friend that rejects you, it hurts. If it's a parent or a spouse, or a child that rejects you, it hurts a lot, a lot more. Now, th think about that. The intimacy that, of, of the relationship and the, the, the duration of the relationship determines how much you suffer when it's broken. Jesus, the intimacy he had with the Father is beyond our comprehension. And he's been having that level of relationship with the Father for all, all of eternity past. And yet he had to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he did that for you and me. In order to ultimately be able to save us from the suffering that we have to go through in this fallen, broken world. That is how much God loves us. Now, let me just say this. The Bible and what Jesus did on the cross doesn't give us all the answers we need about why we suffer in every specific situation. But... It does tell us what the reason cannot be. The reason cannot be because God doesn't care. The reason cannot be because God doesn't love us. The reason cannot be because God has forsaken us. The cross tells us that very clearly.
In other words, Christianity gives us amazing resources to suffer well. Because we know that even though I'm suffering now, God still loves me. He'll never leave me or forsake me because I'll never have to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because Jesus said that in my place. And then, just to close off with, um, you know, one of the most powerful things that help us deal with suffering is the resurrection. The resurrection that Jesus already experienced and that we will experience. You see, the resurrection and the new creation tells us that suffering is an intruder that, that we allowed in as humanity. Through our sin, we allowed it into creation, but God's gonna is busy dealing with it. Yes, he might not have already dealt with it finally, but he's busy dealing with it, and one day he will finally deal with it, and he will change it. Now, sometimes, um, in fact, let me just read you this quote by... Um, by C.S. Lewis, he says, they say that some temporal, uh, um, of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make, it, uh, make up for it. But knowing that heaven, once, not knowing that heaven once attained will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. This is the ultimate defeat of evil and suffering. It will not only be ended, but so radically vanquished that what has happened will only serve to make the future, uh, our future life and joy infinitely greater. Um, in this book, um, Tim Keller tells a story of, of one day having a, a nightmare in which his whole family dies. And it was so vivid and so real that he thought it really happened. And when he woke up, he was so anxious and overwhelmed and terrified that he jumped up and started searching around for him. And then when he found that they were all alive, snoring away, you know, in their beds, he was overwhelmed with thankfulness and joy. And he said from that day on, he actually, because of the suffering of that dream, he appreciated his family so much more. And he, he was just reminded how special each one of them, his wife and his, his children, individually were for him and he appreciated them so much more and he enjoyed them so much more because he had thought he had lost them. And that is what heaven will be like. Your suffering, your pain will be worked back into your life in such a way that your enjoyment of the restoration and the resurrection and all the good things you hoped and dreamed for will be so much greater because of the suffering and because of the loss that you had suffered. Imagine that. Imagine how when all your dreams are fulfilled and surpassed in eternity with God in Christ, when all the pain has been healed and all that has been lost has been restored, and then some. <laughs> How much are you going to enjoy it? Because you, you'll know what it feels like to have lost it. And it will be so much more precious. Because you lost it and got it back. And then got it back even better. So, I just want to encourage you. I think a question like, how can a good God allow suffering? 
It's a good question. It's a legitimate question. But I do think that Christianity and the Bible and the gospel especially have good answers to even such difficult questions. And I think the gospel empowers us to suffer well because we're not suffering alone. We're suffering with Christ and and Christ gives meaning to our suffering. You see, Jesus did not suffer so that we would not suffer, but so that when we do suffer, we become more like him. And so that we can point a world that is full of suffering to a hope beyond that suffering. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Joburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.joburg.com.